You're we're on. What? <laughs> You're off singing by yourself again, weren't you? It's just a shadow way. It's, it's just a shadow way. Wow, you sound like a trailer. <laughs> I just saw a movie trailer recently where, of course, they were playing that again, which is kind of a common occurrence, isn't it? They uh, used Gimme Shelter in the, the trailer for the first Black Ops video game, Call of Duty. I saw that. Yeah, I was very tempted to say Call, Call of Duty Black Ops, a Martin Scorsese film. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. I love Call of Duty trailers. I love the live-action ones. Hmm. Uh, where it's just mainly talking about the multiplayer, and it's like people having fun shooting at each other. Nice. They used they used to give me shelter in one of those. Like Kobe Bryant was in it, like and so hmm. was J- Jimmy Kimmel. Like just to show the ubiquity of Call of Duty multiplayer. Yeah. Jimmy Kimmel. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But, that doesn't. Fr- I guess that shouldn't. But they used the, but they used give me shelter in that. And uh, yeah. So all right, let's go on to our main topic: death. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, how about that for a segue, Andrew? Yeah. Um, the sad thing is that even though actors immortalized certain roles, is that they are mortal themselves. Actors and also, uh, we'll also talk about uh, a filmmaker as well. Yes. Um, but let's get right into it. Um, so this year we lost uh, some good people. You know, some some of them we lost because, again, just the the passage of time and age. Uh, but some of them we lost due to very tragic reasons and circumstances. Before their time. Before their time, for sure. Um, you know, and right at the top of the list, uh, we can go to somebody who kind of died early on in the year, back in February, and that was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> I was just saying, I was just looking at that. I was like, I'm getting tired. <laughs> just just seeing what you've yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I... I... <sighs> I have to say, I think it has to do is that I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate because I've been offered and uh, given the opportunity to work on some great projects yeah. uh, with great people. And uh, I'm at a, I think any time in someone's life, but I'm definitely at a time in my life, and I have been at a time in my life where I, I've been available and could afford the time to do these yeah. things and give my whole heart to them. So that's really why, you know, it's 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 definitely not because I need to be doing a movie every other week, but it's because I've had the opportunity to work with these people, and so I've jumped at it. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying... That's, that, that's what you do. That is exactly... It's, it's what I do, but it's also... I was just saying, you know, I think, like, well, maybe I won't make a movie for about a year. I think, like, that's... Yeah. Maybe I'll take a year, I'll do a play, da, da, da. And But then I go, don't say that to anybody, because, you know, because something like that could happen. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was kind of sad. And that especially... I found that I have actually trouble sometimes now believing that certain people are dead, especially because I end up finding it out on the internet. Like I'll be on Facebook or someone somewhere, and someone will post like, "OMG, Philip Seymour Hoffman's dead," and I'm like, "Yeah, right." Because the thing is, you have a lot of like celebrity death hoaxes that happen now. Yeah. Like Morgan Freeman had that happen to him. Jeff Goldblum had that happen to him. Bill Cosby had it happen to him before his career died. <laughs> <laughs> yes, before his career uh, imploded uh, all so, over the place. Yeah, but I mean, it's hard to because sometimes people just make like stuff that. up, and you have to. That's why, and I wait until I see like ten sites report something, but. 
you know, again, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, that was just really tragic because, you know, it was drugs and, you know, he left, you know, three kids behind. Um, and the thing I remember Philip Seymour Hoffman from was, this is again, another history class thing. He was in like this mini series about the American revolution where he just, really, yeah, he played this. I never heard of this. It, I don't know if this was early in his career, but he was the voiceover and uh, kind of like a talking head in a documentary style thing. Like he was playing this private in the Revolutionary Army, Joseph Plum Martin. Okay. And he would and he would be looking at you in costume and talking to you like he was reading, like he was saying the things in his letters. And that's what I remembered him from, like just doing this this role in this you know just this documentary where he wasn't really much of anything uh but he was supposed to represent this everyday fighter in the american revolution okay and uh that still sticks with me because he's uh he's just saying the uh these historical world words and he's not looking like he's acting and he doesn't look like he's reading he just looks like he's saying it he had that power to just kind of naturally be, you know, where, where what he was doing, you know, and and again, I that's the kind of role that, like, when you say that he narrated narrated it, that I have to believe you, but I can't really see, I because he would usually try to disappear into roles, and that was one of the things that was great about him is that um, just when you can kind of peg what he's going to do, he does something really different like he lost like something like 40 pounds to play uh, Truman Capote and yeah, you know, that was and what got him the Oscar that's what that's what I I, I noticed him in that too and uh, I never even heard of him before that really yeah uh huh. you, like, had you seen any of his movies no I mean I, I don't go out to see a lot of movies and if I do happen I to see tell. a movie with a certain no, actor I'm kidding <laughs> if I happen to see a movie with a certain actor it's not because of the actor okay and, uh, but, you know, I saw him in trailer, in trailers as Truman Capote. Hmm. And, yeah, but that was, and that was nothing like anything else that came, for sure. That came after. I mean, to, the to master me, is completely different. The master is completely different. Just all of his work for Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, like he did, um, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman with Inherent Vice coming out, he's now done seven movies. Philip Seymour Hoffman's been in five of them. Um, starting with Phil, starting with Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie, Hard Eight, he has a small role as this guy in a casino as this gambler. He's this, like this kind of fast talking. I, I I hesitate to say jive talking, but uh, because he's not black, but smack talking. I don't know what you would say about someone who's egging someone on. Trash talker. Uh, there you go, trash talker. That that's a better way to say it for a uh, white guy. Um, so you have that. Um, Honky you speak. have. <laughs> cracker talk. <laughs> I could keep going on. Um, okay, but seriously, so you have Heart Eight, you have Boogie Nights, which is where I first noticed him for sure. Um, he plays this character, uh, you know, in this movie. Again, we talk about movies about movies. This is about the porn movie industry, and he plays this guy named Scotty, who's the the sound operator in this uh, crew. And he's kind of gets the hots for uh, Dirk Diggler, uh, the Mark Wahlberg character. And his kind of big scene in the movie, which is kind of almost heartbreaking, because he really embarrasses himself when he tries to kind of almost put a move on the Dirk Diggler character. And, 
you know, and it's kind of like pathetic and sad. And then he goes into like this car and kind of cries and says that he's a fucking idiot. He is, it's like after seeing him in that movie, I'm like, I have to keep an eye on this guy. This guy is great. Mm. Um, and then he was in Magnolia. He had uh, the role as uh, James Robard's caretaker uh, in that movie. Um, then he's in uh, Punch Drunk Love, where he's has a small role in that. I don't know if you, have you seen Punch Drunk Love? I haven't. Oh man, he just Google, just go on YouTube and check out his scene with Adam Sandler. It's explosive and it's hilarious. He appears literally for just a couple of scenes in that movie, but he makes his mark. It's it's Adam Sandler's movie, but when he shows up, it's just like wow. And then of course the master. Which, you know, we, we then, saw together. Yeah, we saw it together. And that's a performance that I find fascinating, especially in that movie, because you have him and Joaquin Phoenix together. And Joaquin Phoenix has the role of, uh, you know, very, you know, mentally unbalanced kind of guy. But Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is, too. He just hides it a lot better, in a way. Yeah. I mean, his... his, his uh his imbalance only comes out in these fits. Yeah. Very rarely. When he actually he's gets confronted. Always, yeah, but he's always in control. Mm-hmm. He's usually in control of his faculties uh, in a way that's hip, hypnotizing to yeah. most of the people in the movie and even to the viewers in, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. And yeah. he, it's, again, it's one of those things where he's very charming and he talks to you like he believes in everything you say. There and there is a dragon. Every to to him, everybody <laughs> is Optimus Prime. <laughs> and and you see the obvious parallels to, to Scientology in that movie. But yes, but he when makes you him see human. Phil, but when you see Philip Seymour Hoffman, what's his character's name in that movie? Uh, Lancaster Dodd. Lancaster Dodd. You understand why everybody uh, listens to him and takes him seriously because mm-hmm. he is he is. Right in front of you, he is in your head, and he is empathetic. Mm-hmm. He he believes in you, and he believes in your problems, and he wants. Yeah. And he f- seems like he wants to help you, even though what he's saying is absolute nonsense. Oh yeah, and that scene where he does the uh, quote unquote processing, you know, where he interviews uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character. He gets Joaquin Phoenix's character to admit that he had an incestuous relationship <laughs> with his aunt. Yes. Without even trying. Just yeah. by repeating the same question over and over again. And mm-hmm. we don't question that. <laughs> no. it. That's one of those just great acting scenes, too, where, you know, in that scene, you'll notice Phoenix a little bit more because he's the one who's, you know, obviously he has to keep his eyes open. It's almost like a challenge. But Philip Seymour Hoffman is the one who has to be, again, in control. So he's, you know, doing so much strong acting in that scene where he has to be on top of it. So, again, a great loss. He has so many great roles that he's done. Um, His last movie is still to come out, uh, Hunger Games, uh, Mockingjay Part 2. Right. Uh, That movie just came out, the first part as well. Um, and, uh, And just earlier this year, too, he had another movie called The Most Wanted Man which is worth checking out. Right. Um, so there was him, and then connected with that, uh, the other really big one this year was uh, Robin Williams. Knock it off! Yeah. I don't know what you're doing here. You were here just last week. 
Uh, yes, I was. Yeah. I decided, oh, you know what? Let's go back. All right. Did you have a nice time in London? Because I know that's where you were headed. Yes. It was, it was fabulous. Or as they say there, brilliant. Oh, they do say brilliant for everything. They say actually, ooh la la. Brilliant. Yes, they do. I see you picked up their habits. Yes, uh, so long, Robin's dentist. <laughs> God bless us all. God bless us all. That's all work for you. That looks uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Terry Thomas School of Acting. <laughs> to Terry, Terry, I loved Terry. Oh, he's always. He, he, I loved it when he said he was. He said, "You're Jerry, as you're an absolute char." <laughs> Get in the back of that van. You've, be, you've behaved abysmally in this war. It's amazing, too, with all those war movies where they always had the Germans who had English accents. So, open Führer now. <laughs> but they do that in, in Rome as well, when it's like Roman... Uh, oh, yeah. Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! Oh, Brutus, come here for the not knowing my name and calling me thus. We shall go there. Stand behind me, gentle friend. <laughs> they never had, like, a really hardcore Italian Caesar go, what are you going to do right now, huh? <laughs> Yeah, right there. Hey, hello! Yeah. Another loss, you know, and that one, you know, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, that was that was a death a little bit more akin to, you know, Heath Ledger because that was like an accidental overdose. Whereas, you know, Robin Williams, you know, it was, you know, the big. Uh, yeah. What can you say about a comedian who commits suicide? I don't. It's. I, there's nothing I. It, there's very little we can say right now that'll shed any light on, you know, what he was going through. What he was going through. Yeah, and it's. Uh, and I had uh, I had no idea about any. No, he who did? Any, no, I, don't I mean, think I th really at know most, except to those who were closest to him. At most, people might have known that. He did have substance abuse problems. He yes, had actually definitely. been in rehab. Well, I mean, um, he did a whole stand-up routine about his his. Yeah, well, he has stand-up routine. Abuse. He had it again, though. It flared up like a few years before his death, but nobody really thought that was connected with it at all. I think recently they did. It was released that he might have had um, either I don't know if it was dementia or maybe Parkinson's, like early onset. So maybe that might have given. But at any rate. You know, probably one of the biggest losses in a really long time because, yeah. you know, I mean, we've we grew up with Robin Williams. Like to yeah. me, to me, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's loss was pretty great because you know he was really tremendous actor. You know, cut off in his mid forties, he still had a career to go on to. Robin Williams, though, he was like a star. He was somebody who when little was, kids could recognize Robin Williams. Anybody, any age, whether you're like, you know, four years old or eighty four years old. You know, that kind of expanse, so to speak. Yes. You know. I mean, it's a broad expanse, and, and people often exaggerate, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, when you're a kid and you see the movie Aladdin, you know, that it's a good movie, but it becomes great in large part because of Robin Williams as the genie. He's a showstopper. He's an absolute showstopper. He kind of also, in this way, arguably changed the kind of landscape of voice acting in those kind of animated movies because before that you would sometimes get kind of a famous guy doing uh you know a voice in an animated movie uh you know maybe you'd get like john hurt for like the black cauldron or something like that uh, who was john hurt in the black cauldron was he the horned king yeah wow mm-hmm uh or, or too bad it's such a crappy movie <laughs> i need to see it again i i don't 
I want to give another. Well, if you want to talk about somebody. famous people in bad animated movies, you can talk about the Last Unicorn. But uh, but the point but is, uh, but Williams, you do though. make a point about Robin Williams changing things in voice acting. I can think of about probably a dozen knockoff characters that were inspired by the genie in Aladdin that yes. showed up in animated films. Some of the one of them even voiced by Robin Williams. Remember Fern Gully? Well, that came. The funny thing is that came around the same time though as Aladdin. I think those both came out in 1992. Those well. I, I mean, think, you, I think Fern Gully the came after. Yeah, Fern Gully. I nah, think, came I think after. that those were different kind of characters, though. No, they came out the same year. You could look. No, it but up. I mean, but they're still like one came out first. <laughs> I think Fern Gully came after. I'd have to look it up. I think they came out the same year. I but still, that's uh, they're not the same character, but it's still Robin Williams doing his thing. And and even later on, you have films where there are famous voice actors who are doing that sort of comedic sure. stick in in later animated films. I, oh no, there's no, prob- sure. you could probably make a like list Eddie Murphy of, and Shrek. Well, I haven't seen Shrek, so <laughs> okay. Well, get out. To a certain no, extent, like remember Mulan. <laughs> well, yeah. All right. Well, Eddie Murphy, Murphy in that movie. as the dragon, Mushu. Okay. I mean, that's very much a, yeah. uh, that sort mm-hmm. of character. But, again, I mean, just his career, you know, all the movies, I mean, I could just rattle them off. I mean, Mrs. Doubtfire, Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, Dead Poets Society. The Dead Poets Society, The Birdcage, Good Will Hunting. Awakenings. Awakenings. And to me, he also, when I was, like, 18 years old, and this is going back in 2002, he had... One of the most remarkable years of like any actor I can think of in like this uh, in the 21st century. Like in 2002, he did Death to Smoochie, which is not which it's not a movie I, I really like that much, but I respect it as kind of like this weird dark comedy about like TV uh, children's clock, programming. Yeah, him and Edward Norton are in it. And it's John a kind Stewart. Of, yeah, it's the kind of movie I almost want to give another sh- chance to. Like, maybe I didn't give it a fair shot when I first saw it. Five-day immersion cinema tank. Oh, God, for Death to Smoochie. <laughs> I'll do it with you. You would watch the same... You would watch Death to Smoochie with me for five I would. days? Uh, we would make it a great podcast. Let's think about that. Yeah, we'll put that on hold right now. We okay, but the point Ron is... Williams. So, 2002, Death to Smoochie, Insomnia, and One Hour Photo. Yeah. Now, these... Other- I remember when... Yeah, Robert Williams doing his sort of thriller role. I thought, well, this... I mean, even back then when I was in high school, I'm like, well, that's a real left turn. Yeah, well, that's him, again, like, his, he's finally kind of taking that Oscar win and, t- you know, taking it for what it's worth that, you know, he does these two movies where, you know, in Insomnia, he plays a killer, and in One Hour Photo, he plays this kind of creepy, obsessive Travis Bickle type uh, who works in a Photoshop, and... Those two roles are just... You can go back and watch that and suddenly think, wait, this guy was the genie? This guy was doing all the... This, this guy was, was this Mork. Was, this was Mork from Ork. Exactly. And also his stand-up was incredible, too. Um, I remember uh, another substituting gig I did where it was a theater class and we watched Inside the Actor's Studio with Robin Williams. That's one of the best episodes. It's one of the best. I haven't... I'll, t- I'll take your word for it because it's the only one I've ever seen, and it was marvelous. I watched it three times in a day. As three times as in a day? Yeah. And, each, oh, and the first time, it was, it was so full of laughs. And... <laughs> 
and I could probably there, and I, there's still a lot of things I could remember about it, like yeah, when, you know, going to, when he went to New York and doing his small time acting and 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 stand and stand up and about being trained as an actor and the stories that were told about yeah. that and being a mime out in front of the Metropolitan. Yeah, Museum. he had a lot of great stories. You can guess basically get the Robin Williams story compressed into an hour and a half with lots and lots of jokes and lots of off the wall improvisation. Just sometimes, sometimes he'll just see like a woman's scarf in the audience and he'll do like five minutes on that. Yeah. Just like one of the great minds. And yet I guess this mind, maybe that, you know, there was a dark side to it. Well, yes. Uh, and you don't want to glorify people who, you know, this sort of like, the, the suffering artist or the, or the sort of crying clown sort of stereotype where to be truly brilliant you also have to be tortured. Because, no, that's no, not that's, always the it's case. Not, it's not true. No. But, I mean... It's just that it's... It, it almost, people, but, people persevere through through great hardships, whether that's internal or external. Exactly. And one's not dependent on the other, but the fact that he did do so much, mm-hmm. even with depression and substance abuse... Mm-hmm. Uh, is truly a testament to his to his skill. Yeah, and the fact sure. that he was able to make so many people laugh, even though he himself uh, mm. was suffering at times. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure. We we can be sad that he's gone, but we also have to recognize that he did so much. Yeah, and uh, and and as you said, little kids still recognize his voice, and uh, you'll always be able to look back at Aladdin and be able to. He was a true, you know, he was a star, and he was also one of those recognizable personalities. It's like, as soon as he shows up, he'll take over a room. Yes. You know, and, and a stage, and a, sometimes a movie. And, uh, yeah, just a huge, huge loss. Um, so going through a couple other ones now. Uh, um, now this one, I know that you wanted to talk about this guy, um... And now he, now this guy, unlike uh, Ron Williams and Phillips Yarofen, he lived a pretty full life. And this was Eli Wallach. He yes. died at the very young age of 98. Let me tell you a little about myself. As an actor, I've played more bandits, thieves, killers, warlords, molesters, and mafiosi that you could shake a stick at. I'm coming. As a civilian, I collect antique clocks, tell endless stories of my days as a medic in World War II, watch every tennis match, live for my family, daily mail, run the dishwasher, take pictures of faces in the bark of trees. I, I really have a penchant for a man named Josh Brolin. Brolin. There he is. I mean, this is one of these guys who, I think I told my mom that he was dead, and he, she was like, wait, I thought he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> He's, you, know, you know you've lived a full life when you get that. You know, when well, you, or either that or you're incredibly underappreciated. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, though, Eli Wallach about, you know, It'd be one thing if he hadn't worked in, like, a long time, and all of a sudden you hear, like, he passed, and it's like, oh, that's sad. I saw him in two movies. Now, granted, this is a few years ago, but he had small roles in both 
The Ghost Rider, which was a Roman Polanski movie, and Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps. That's where I recognized him. Yeah, you saw him in that, right? Yeah, because I had... I, I learned about UI Walk by watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yes, like and all he, good Americans and people should do. Right, and <laughs> and because of that, because it's it was it's one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. and because it was one of my brother's favorite movies, we we could recognize UI Walk at any moment. Yeah, and the, I, remar- the remarkable thing about that performance too is that I mean, when you think about it, this is like a Jewish guy from New York who's playing a Mexican. And he's playing him so well. Yeah, I, he had don't... a knack for playing Mexicans. Too. Yes, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Yes, but I saw that the I saw a TV tr- a teaser for Wall Street too. Okay, and there's just a quick shot of old men sitting around a table, yeah. and I remember this: my parents were in the living room, and my aunt was in the living room. Okay, and I just looked at the TV, watching this trailer. And you see those old men, and I pointed and said, Eli Wong! <laughs> <laughs> and everyone looked look, at you like... Everyone looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> but... Oh, they're like, do you have a brain disorder? <laughs> they didn't know what I was talking about, of course. They're like, but, yeah. But I recognized him. Mm-hmm. And, again, it was that thing, like, uh, the only movies I knew him from were ones from... Uh, the 60s and 70s. Yeah, well, he was also he, he in, was the in The Magnificent Seven. Seven. Which I still... I'm going to out myself here. I still need to see that. Oh. I'll lend it to you. I have it. You know what it is? I have it on VHS. And well, I do too. Well, that's... I want to wait to... Wa- I, I just need to get a DVD copy because I want to see it in widescreen. Are you sure you don't have a widescreen? Never mind. Okay, but the point is, so he was in but that, he, and again he, playing a Mexican, just like in Good, Bad, and Ugly, <laughs> uh, Calvera. And this is actually before that, so I have to think Sergio Leone might have watched that movie and been like, "Oh, this guy could work for Tuco." Yeah, but he's not just. But even though he's a Jewish guy playing a Mexican, he is not a stereotype. He takes it seriously. He was one of these actors from. You know, like the old school acting school. You know, like from the Marlon theater. Brando type of guy. Yeah, from the theater. So he, when he approached someone like Tuco, he approached him almost from like, what's his core? What's he really about? Method acting. Exactly. He was, you know, he he took the guy seriously. And because of that, you know, we're not seeing somebody who's just doing a put-on of, you know, uh, uh, Eli Wog playing Tuco could have gone horribly wrong if it wasn't someone of that training and that taking him seriously. It could have been caricature. Yes, Eli Wallach had intensity about him. Yes. And, 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 you know, talk about race-bending in Hollywood movies, but still, uh, he gave these these characters who otherwise would have been banditos mm -hmm. with, you know, with huge sombreros and big bandoliers full of bullets, and he gave them a certain depth. They they had a sort... Tuco had a family life, mm-hmm. but, uh, even you know, while he was a bandit and during uh, and before he was a bandit. And Calvera was a, a bandit in the, the literal sense, but yeah. he had a reason for doing what he did. He wasn't just the shooting that... everybody and taking everything he wanted. He took and he shot for reasons. The clips I've seen of the movie, uh, especially, it kind of shows him near the end of the movie, and just in that little bit I saw, I'm like. Okay, I get this guy. I could see like he asks at one moment like why about why? something. Yeah, and just seeing that, I'm like, okay, this is great. 
Um, one thing I wanted to mention, though, with the I Walk 2, there was a movie in the 50s, and I haven't seen this movie all the way through, but it was a, uh, oh, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Ilya Kazan uh, did this movie called Baby Doll, and I haven't seen this full movie, but if you check out the title is familiar. It's basically about these two guys who are kind of trying to romance this, like, nymphette. Basically, oh. it was super risque for 1956. Maybe for today, it's not so much. But Eli Walk is like one of these guys, and just watch a clip of it on YouTube if you get a chance. He is also really great in just this like little bit in the movie. And speaking of YouTube clips with Eli Wallach, so this was something this you was showed a clip me. that I found years <laughs> ago, and I just showed Jack, which is a perfect example of Eli Wallach's intensity in a movie called Lineup. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what it's about. It's assume, I assume it's a crime film. Mm-hmm. And wherever I can find it, I'll find it and I'll watch it Great. very soon. I'd like to watch it. With but you. the scene is, Eli Walk's talking to a guy in a wheelchair who, even though he's in a wheelchair, he's threatening him. He's like, And he says, you're, you're on borrowed time. You can get to the airport maybe, but you're dead. Like, get out! And he slaps Eli Wallach in the face, and and you Eli Wallach—he's getting mad. Oh, he's getting mad. He's like the Hulk, man. <laughs> and he looks like, and you know that feeling in someone's eyes, like when you slap him and their eyes go wide and they go. And Eli Wallach just takes this guy, pushes his wheelchair off of, yeah. over a banister, and he falls two stories. See, you just screaming. You just put an idea in my head. I wish we could... Don't go... push me off of a banister in a wheelchair. No, it's not about that. I mean, I'll try to do that one day. But um, <laughs> the point is, you just when you just said that he hulked out, I want to now see Eli Wallach... Or I wish we could have seen him as Bruce Banner. Huh? As the Hulk. He could have done it. He could have been a mousy scientist I wouldn't, who... I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Um, so that was one... That was a big loss. Um, Watch lineup. Yes, watch lineup. But we can't say that Eli Wallach uh, he, didn't give us the most. I mean, he was in Ken Burns documentaries doing voiceovers. He, oh, he, he had, was in that too. He had uh, he, was he in, had parts in the war. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and possibly, uh, maybe the Prohibition documentary that was done. You know, he popped up in The Godfather Part Three. Okay. You you can take my word for it, but he's in there. Um, only in Part Three, though. Why? And he's here's not in the, the thing: it's, two, it's not going to be the. He, I, he he wouldn't be an actor like Robin Williams who showed up in these really big parts and really big movies. He was he see, was a character actor. Yeah, and you would see him sprinkled around in all these different movies. Like if you were watching a big movie, he would probably only be in there for like five minutes. But he would leave his mark. Yes. You know, even it's funny too. Like one of his last roles, he even popped up in uh, Mystic River, and that was the first time. That Clint, and the only other time Clint Eastwood worked with uh, Eli Wallach, he plays like a shop keep owner, sheep, uh, a shop owner, uh, and he you has see, just... there are two kinds of people in this world: those who shop and those who keep the shops. <laughs> Good one. Um, you get me, Eli? Yes. No, Clint. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, let's move on. Uh. So, a couple other people to talk about. Um, uh, Harold Ramis, he was another big guy who died earlier this year. Of course, for those of you who don't know, um, he, he was died just really before, big in comedy. Uh, before the Oscars. Yeah, this year. He, 
he got mentioned like it was almost uncertain if he was going to get a mention at the Oscars. Uh, I think well, he Bill did. Murray took care, took care of that. He did mention him. Yes, that's true. Um, and of course, he was Egon Spengler in Ghostbusters. That's what he'll be best remembered for. I but think. I think, but the thing he probably best deserves to be recognized for is for directing Groundhog Day. Well, yeah, he was a director too. Yeah, he directed Groundhog Day. Which he directed is, uh, Ghostbusters, right? No, that was Ivan Reitman. He oh. co-wrote. Uh, Ghostbusters with Dan Aykroyd. Right. He directed uh, some of the movies he directed were Caddyshack, uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, um, uh, Analyze This, and um, yeah, and also uh, Groundhog's Day. And he also, I think his first movie was he also co-wrote Animal House. He was all part of like that group of com- comedians in the seventies, like SCTV, and National Lampoon, who you know took a whole new fresh approach to lamp, you know. In other words, lampooning stuff. And again, if you watch a movie like Caddyshack, or especially, you know, especially you watch Ghostbusters, um, he was also, uh, you know, he was a funny actor too. Like yeah. you watch him in Ghostbusters, and of course, when you watch that movie, it's Bill Murray's movie. But when he pops up as Egon Spengler, he just nails that kind of character. Yeah, he's not sarcastic like uh, like Bill Murray is. He's he he plays it kind of straight, but he just says funny things. He plays the Don. He plays the Donatello character. Yes. In terms of the the Ninja Turtles paradigm, uh, he's Donatello. He's the smart one, the one who makes gadgets. <laughs> uh, but I still have to get back to Groundhog Day because I just saw that film this year. Okay, that's and, a good movie. Yeah, and it's the I I think the term for Bill Murray's character in that film is redeemable asshole. Yeah, that's and, what. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's a challenge in, in any film because yeah. there. are... There are lots of characters who are... It's hard to have a main character who's an asshole Mm -hmm. because you can't identify with them if you don't like them. Yeah. And you have to redeem them somehow, and that doesn't always work. Uh, The key, which I've heard uh, from several sources, is to make them suffer. (laughs) And in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray suffers. Oh, yeah, he does. He suffers Mm -hmm. possibly for centuries. Yes. Yes. See, that's why I... I might have mentioned this to you either on the past podcast or another one. That's why you really have to watch Edge of Tomorrow. Because that's basically Groundhog's Day, but crossed with a video game. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. A lot of video game movies, I have to say. Yeah, well. Not all no, of them. No, not all <laughs> of them. There are two, there are, to me, there are two video game movies, and they're not even based on video games. One is Scott Pilgrim, and one is Edge of Tomorrow. Um, Ralph. Or, okay, Wreck-It Ralph. Um, so, yeah, Howard Ramis. Another one uh, that um, you might have uh, forgotten is uh, Bob Hoskins. He um, passed away, unfortunately, due to Parkinson's at 71. Again, another a, a, a character actor. Yeah, he would... Like Eli Wallach, and you'd find him in the unexpected places, like Snow White and the Huntsman. That was his last movie. Oh, I see. Yeah, that was his last... Like, he announced... It's funny, well, he announced his retirement, like, soon after that, uh, because, you know, he had Parkinson's, and then, Uh you know, so that was, yeah, his last role was not that long ago, but, you know, and of course, he lives on for me, because, you know, the very first movie that I saw, that I can, well, I don't know if it was the very first movie I saw, but the first one I can remember seeing in a movie theater was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Character and, actors, good character actors seem to have one movie where they get a lead and it becomes great. Well, it's funny. Well, I found out, though, recently he actually had other leads in movies. They were just a little bit more, like, low-budget independent. Like, there was this movie in the 80s 
uh, called Mona Lisa, which was this British crime movie uh, where he's this guy who uh, works for Michael Caine uh, as kind of like a, a, a gangster's <laughs> underling. Talk about character actors. <laughs> Michael Caine. Yeah. No, please don't. I, I could try to do a Michael Caine imitation now, and now it's only took me a dike. I'm too tired to try to do a proper Michael Caine. Just quit. Sorry. But point is, Bob Hoskins, how good of an actor he is is the fact that, I mean, the first two movies that I saw of his when I was a kid were Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Super Mario Brothers. And, yes, I have to bring that up. Well, well as a kid... He's still it's fondly a, remembered after Super Mario <laughs> Brothers. That is a testament to his skill. A funny anecdote, his kid actually once asked him, why'd you do that movie? Like, his, like you know, and he said you know, and he said it was for the money. And he's like, you didn't need the money like, that much. Like Raul Julia in Street Fighter. See, I, I can... Bob Hoskins doing Super Mario, I'm okay with that. Raul Julia is... As a bison, oh, poor guy. And that was his last movie, by the way. Um, but yeah, Bob Hoskins. So my point is, he does Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He does Super Mario Brothers. Then I forget what movie it was, but I saw something with him when I was like maybe 13, 14 years old. And I hear him do a British accent, and I'm like, he's British? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I he did it. He his like American accent. Warren. Yeah, his American <laughs> accent was so convincing you know, as Eddie Valiant in the Super Mario, that, you know, I just assumed he was American. But that was one of those things where he was that convincing. And then I found out most of his movies, he's British. Yeah. So that's the funny thing. And, you know, of course... Innocence shattered. The yeah. The Jack Gatinella story. Yes. <laughs> in stores now. In the back of the story. Um, Get to work on it. I'll try. Um, so I miss... Yeah, Bob Hoskins, he will be quite missed, especially as... Uh, you know, I have a I have a real fondness for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I kind of look at that as I'm glad I saw that when I was so young because it was a movie that, um, like I think about when Tarantino once talked about how much Abin Costello meets Frankenstein influenced him because the movie was really about genre distinctions. That you have a movie where the comedy is really funny, but the horror in it is actually you know, decent horror. Yeah, terrible things happen to people in that movie. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I don't know if it's completely glossed over by the fact that it happens to humans, but... But, uh, oh, you're talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it's a film noir. It's a detective movie, not like, you know, The Big Sleep or something. But it's set in But a it's world a cartoon world. world. Yeah. And for me as a kid, you know, I, I was in love with cartoons... And I still am, but back then I was, like, so passionate about them. And to see those two married together, you know, I think that's secretly probably been one of my big influences, Plus really. the bizarre circumstances of Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny being in the same place at the same time. Yeah. That's insane. Well, for me, seeing Daffy Duck and Donald Duck having a, a, piano, a piano off, yeah. that was, you know, as a kid, that just blew my mind. Oh, man. Uh, so such good a, things happen every once in a while. They do, yeah. Um, anyway, Sorry so to Bob say Hoskins. In this retrospective. Yes, unfortunately. Um, another person to mention uh, who uh, passed on old age was uh, Lauren Bacall, and I mentioned her being in The Big Sleep. Um, what was interesting about her was she, I think originally she was just a model, and then she. Somehow got an audition, I think, for Howard Hawks to do uh, To Have and Have Not. And that's the movie where 
it's very famous for the interaction he ha- she has with Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. And her big line there is, um, you know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow. So, of course, for 1944, that was akin to, uh, you know, I want to see your boobs or something. It was, <laughs> only it was much more sophisticated than that back in the day. It was... You know. See, that's that's a great thing about old movies. You can't be up. You, they couldn't be upfront about sex. Yeah, but exactly. you, but if you could be clever about, you could it, be salacious. You could be salacious, but you didn't have to be explicit. Exactly. Um, and she had a pretty good Michael career. Michael Bay. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> We're looking at you for sure. Um, but this is not healthy. No. All right. <laughs> so Lauren Bacall, though, really good actress and. You know, had a lot of great roles with Humphrey least, Bogart. Yes. You know, I mentioned you have and have not. You have The Big Sleep. You have a movie called Key Largo, which is really worth checking out. Um, and she was still doing movies for, you know, up till recent years. She was in this movie called Birth. Um, with Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman. Yeah, which was inspired in part by Unchin Andalou. Right. At least that's according to Matt Rosen. And, um, and yeah, so, and she was a good actress, and she will be missed as well. Um... Now, a filmmaker who I'd like to talk about who just passed on recently is Mike Nichols. And, uh, of course, he's no, best known uh, and will forever be known for The Graduate. You know, that's his big movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he won the Oscar, and it was only his, like, second feature film. Uh, before that, he was actually part of a comedy team uh, called Nichols and May, uh, where it was him and this actress, uh, Elaine, Nichol- uh, Elaine May. I call her Elaine Nichols. And... They were they were a very funny comedy team. Like I haven't seen all of their bits, but I checked out a few of them on online and uh, really good comedy team. But Mike Nichols, you know, such a consummate professional guy, and you know, he just made memorable movie after memorable movie. Like I could rattle off so many great things that he did. Go uh, ahead. Like, well, he starts off his career doing an adaptation of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is one of the great you know, plays of the mid-20th century. You have Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor as this, like, drunken uh, couple who host these young people at their house And then after that came The Graduate? Yeah, then The Graduate came. Uh, Then he did an adaptation of Catch-22. Oh, uh, I've seen that. Oh, you have? Yes. With Alan Arkin and uh, Orson Welles. Art Garfunkel. Is Art Garfunkel... Is he in that movie? Yes. Okay, I forgot about that. Yeah, I like that movie a lot, and I made me want to read the book, which I should do anyway. Um, <laughs> Thank God for Alan Arkin. Yeah, Alan Arkin's awesome in that movie. Um, I think that's one of the things that set off his career, too. <laughs> oh, there's a scene in Catch-22 I love where it's Orson... Not, is that the one with Orson Welles you're thinking of? Where he, With the medals? Yes, and he's completely... And he nah, shows nah, up, nah, 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 nah. Don't say anything. Okay. You, yeah. No, don't, I won't say anything. So he does that. He does Catch-22. And he does what I think might be my favorite movie of his, uh, which is called Carnal Knowledge. And this is a movie with Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel. Um, watching Art Garfunkel in Carnal Knowledge, I almost feel like I'm looking at Jesse Eisenberg's father. He kind of acts just like him in a way, but older or something. Wow. Uh, you know, he's like an awkward kind of nerdy guy. And that's just, uh, man, the dialogue in that movie is so great. And that's one of Nicholson's best performances. Um, You know, the way that he holds on shots a lot of the time is really impressive for me. He won't rush things. He'll keep things moving, but he'll 
take his time with it. So he has that. I'll mention a few other movies. Uh, the Birdcage. Again, we were talking about Robin Williams. Yes. And also with Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, he his last feature film was uh, Charlie Wilson's War, which came out a few years ago. Also Tom Hanks, uh, Julia Roberts. Yeah, um, I read the book of uh, the book. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, that's a fascinating story, if all true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the movie's very funny. Um, yeah, I've seen clips from that. and That was another great it, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. Yeah. <laughs> the scene where he breaks the window. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent the last three years learning Finnish, which will be very helpful for me when I'm in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> um, so again, yeah, lots of great movies. Uh, Primary Colors. Um, not a great movie, but Wolf is a fun movie, where Jack Nicholson becomes a werewolf. You could say any number of jokes about that. I could. I'm sorry. I think Jack Nicholson was a wolf who became a man. <laughs> I tried to be. Uh, that See? was my one Nicholson. All right, I'll stop. Let's keep moving. Because yeah. we'll be here all night. Yes. Um, so that was Mike Nichols, though. Really great guy. If you hear him in interviews, too, he comes off as a true like class act. And um, you know, just had a lot of great things to say about like craft and acting and stuff like that. And, uh, um, yeah. And actually I credit you. Lo- you love the people who a lot of people seem unapproachable when, when you recognize them as these famous directors or actors, but then yeah. you see them as, mm-hmm. pe- uh, you know, talking and not everybody has the ability to, to seem friendly or to, or to yeah. make productive discussion. I've seen mm-hmm. interviews with people that you, you'd be very nervous to meet. But when you finally see a celebrity or an actor who's, who seems just very approachable, that's a very special moment. Yeah, for sure. And I also, one last thing to say about him, I give him credit as well for uh, getting me into Breaking Bad. Um, because I saw him do a Q&A um, at, after a screening of Carl Knowledge, and something in conversation came up about the show and he talked about how much he loved it and I hadn't watched the show yet. And hearing him say that though, I was like, huh, okay, he likes it. Maybe I will check that out. You know, cause if he digs it, maybe he had, he has good taste. That famous person is doing something. Maybe yeah. I should do that. Yes. So that was Mike Nichols. Uh, just to wrap up. I'm glad you mentioned him because I was, I was unfamiliar with his work. Yeah. And, uh, he now- made a lot of good stuff, man. He, uh, um, I mean, he made a few movies that you know didn't quite hit the mark either, but uh, I mean, but what what you've mentioned is like he's obviously done st- his share of great things. Oh yeah, and he was you know around you know again you know he makes his first movie in 1966, and the other thing about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was it was the first movie to be released, um, you know, during that time of the code, you know, the the code era as we talk about the where. You know, where everything had to be approved for basically all audiences, practically. Uh, even Lolita, technically, kids could go see that movie. Well, yeah, no um, rating system. But no rating had, system. But there was a code. But that was the first movie where, you know, there there was kind of a rating for it. It wasn't rate, art rated R, but it was, you know, kids should not see us unless accompanied by an adult. Right, and it's hard to make it, and it's hard to get exceptions in such a rigid system. Yeah, so that was the first kind of, you know, gunshot uh, before you had like Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch sort of break apart the the whole code. Um, so Mike Nichols, we miss you, brother. Um, and uh, right a couple more people rattle off here. Uh, James Garner, he was uh, somebody who. 
I hadn't seen a lot of his movies. I'd seen a few. Um, he was one of those actors who, like, almost like Jack Lemmon or Walter Matthau, who in the 90s, I kind of saw as, like, oh, you're an old guy. I'll see, maybe I'll see your movie. You might be funny. But, but even but when he was young, he was in The Great Escape. Was he? Yeah. I don't remember him in that. He was the he was the scrounger. Am I thinking of James Garner? I th- I don't know. I feel like he might have been... He wouldn't have been too young for it, but I don't remember him in the movie. You're not thinking of Charles Bronson. No, no, no. Wait, just to make sure we have the right person. God, I hate myself for doing this. Do you remember the Ro- Do you know what the Rockford Files are? Yes. Okay, we're talking about the same man. Yeah, that was him. He was in The Great Escape. He played an American guy who scrounged for materials to dig this tunnel. Okay. But he was also in another movie I just saw this year, Victor Victoria. Oh, okay. Where he fell in love with Julie Andrews. Oh, he and was had in that. To, okay, I haven't seen that one. And he plays a, a manly man in that film. And, yeah. And the problem is, is that Julie Andrews is posing as a man. Yeah. And he and she can't reveal that she's a man. So James Garner basically has to pretend that he's going out with a man. <laughs> but it's but it's not just this cheap gag. It's this. It's. All of it. There is substance to this. Exactly. It's no, not no, a there cheap is substance. Joke. Exactly. Exactly. So he, and it's because he and it's because he is kind of. I mean, later on you see him as an old man. And he and he does pull off this very manly facade, more or less. Mm-hmm. But he uh, is, and that's part of why he plays that so well. He's seen as very manly. Yes. No. I, I agree. Yeah. He. It's interesting because, again, he's, he was a little bit before my time in a way. I think, like, I heard about him being on the Rockford Files, and that seemed to be a show that uh, I think Manly Men watched in the 70s. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just raised my fist in the air for emphasis. Um, but he was in some movies that I saw here and there. Uh, he was in Space Cowboys. I don't know if oh, you ever saw that movie. Space Cowboys. Yeah. He was, like, the guy who... Uh, became a priest, not priest, but he became like a reverend after uh, he was uh, working for the space program in the fifties. And you know, he he's the guy that goes like, "I have received word from on high, and the word is, why don't I be an astronaut?" <laughs> in, this in doesn't sound like a good movie. It was kind of fun. I mean, you know, you get Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Donald Sutherland, and James Garner, and it's like they're all old men astronauts. And Tommy Jones was the youngest of them by, like, 15 years. He's like, what am I? I'm not old. <laughs> I'm not old. What are you talking about? We'll give you $10 million to pretend you're old. Okay. <laughs> um, so, well, call a couple other people who passed on. Uh, uh, there was an actress named uh, Ruby D, um, who, who was in a movie I just I talked about earlier tonight, Do the Right Thing. Wow. Uh, she and... I know that name. I just can't think well, of anything. For a long time, I mean, she was actually very politically Oh, wait active. a minute. She... And she and uh, Ozzie Davis. She was in Davis. Stuff with Ozzie Davis. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the both of them are in the movie. Um, the characters they play, it's funny, though, because they are kind of antagonists through a lot of the movie. And by the end, they don't really come together romantically, but they find a kind of common ground together. And it's very fascinating to watch them in the movie because you can tell they have this chemistry. Uh, she plays this character named Mother Sister. And he's uh, Demare. She's my mother. She's my sister. Yeah. She's one, my mother. Yeah. She's a mother and sister to people who need them. Or sister, I should say. Um, 
and she's you know she's very good in the movie. She was very famous for uh, being you know one of the first uh, black actresses to really break out in the fifties and sixties. Um, and I think one of her last movies was American Gangster, and she played Denzel Washington's mom. And it's fun. She got an Oscar nomination for the movie, and it's like her one scene. That and they showed a clip of it. The Oscars is her like slapping Denzel Washington. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we you get an Oscar nomination because you slapped Denzel Washington and lived to tell about it. <laughs> um, so, but she, but she, she was very famous. She was like an activist in the civil rights movement as well. Yeah, very politically aware and uh, well, like a lot of. Uh, like a lot of African American actors and actresses mm-hmm. and and artists at the time. Yeah, she was part. She was part of the civil rights movement. And yeah, and that certainly deserves to be remembered as, sure. as much as any film role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she'll be missed for sure. Now name a couple other small people who. Well, there, there, there are no small people. Only small actors. Yes, I remember the axiom. Um, uh, recently, uh, there's actor Warren Clark. He was in uh, Clockwork Orange. Um, and uh, he was the guy uh, Dim. He was. Uh, he was one of the Droogs. He was one of the Droogs. He was. You would recognize him if you saw him, because uh, he's the one who kind of stands up to Alex. Yeah, and I remember that. All that stuff. Gets whacked in the crotch. He does. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Warren, <laughs> Warren on his on his tombstone. Warren Clark. He got whacked in the crotch by Malcolm McDowell. Oh man. <laughs> Uh, Aren't we supposed to be paying tribute to some of these people? I am paying tribute. Clockwork Orange is one of my favorite movies. It is a damn good movie. It is. Uh, It just missed the mark. Uh, Actually, it probably should have been in my top five movies that I did, but I'm going to reserve that for The top five always changes, Jack. It does. Um, So he'll be missed. Also, uh, Richard Kyle, or Keel, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Do you know who he is? Jaws, James Bond, James Bond films, Ega. If you if your members remember, <laughs> yes, that he part was Ega. I yeah. forgot about and that. And he was in the Twilight Zone to serve man. That episode, I have not seen that. Or did I? It's it's a cookbook. <laughs> I don't. Know. You don't know that? No. Ah, oh, god damn. Okay. <laughs> there is going to be a Twilight Zone marathon on New Year's Eve. You are I've seen to... a lot of Twilight Zone episodes. But you haven't seen To Serve Man? Maybe I have, and I just... Who was he in that? He was the big alien. Who else would Richard <laughs> Keel play in a movie about giant aliens? In a television show? That... <laughs> <laughs> okay, stop. You're about to Hulk out on me. Alright. Alright. So, and he was, also I... in, he was also in Happy Gilmore. <laughs> That's where I also remember him. From. Uh, it's it's a little troubling to think that he can uh, that an actor can only be known for playing really tall people, even well, in some really terrible movies. Well, we talk but, about character actors who have passed on. He was a character. I mean, again, does he but, even have a line of dialogue in those James no, Bond movies? James Bond movies. No, and he's he was in, like, in more I, I than don't... one, so he had clearly an imposing presence. But that's that's the unfortunate thing. In Ega, he had no lines. I hate to bring that up, but it's the only <laughs> other thing I know him from. So you haven't seen him? You haven't Watch seen Happy Gilmore? Snakes. No. But and <laughs> in, even in that Twilight Zone episode, he has no lines. He doesn't speak. Like everything is is recorded and just. He he holds his mouth open and then lines. Yeah. In Happy Gil- in Happy Gilmore, he's one of the funniest things in the movie, and he has lines. Okay, and, good. Yeah, and he's somebody who, 
very he he kind of taunts uh, kind of the antagonist of the movie and is very funny in doing so. Okay. Um, yeah, he's the kind of guy. It's like like this is kind of an exchange in the movie. Like the bad guy says to him, "Oh, you can count. Good for you." Richard Kiel says, "And you can count on me waiting for you in the parking lot." But the way he says it... <laughs> he says it a lot better than you did, I assume. He says it more menacingly, but also a lot funnier. Okay. So Richard Kyle's gone. Keel. Keel, sorry. I will kneel to Keel. I think that's a fitting tribute. Yes. Um, there's just a couple names. Uh, Ann B. Davis, uh, uh, who was uh, on the, Bra- uh, the Brave Bunch. It's not really oh. a movie thing. I, she was... She was Alice. Yes, Alice. Yeah, right. She's gone. Uh... Now, this is actually one of the big names that maybe I should have said at the beginning, but honestly, I am actually I have never seen one of her movies. Shirley Temple. I haven't seen any Shirley Temple movies. The only either. way I know Shirley Temple is because of a Donald Duck cartoon that I saw as a kid and I loved. Because this whole cartoon was all about how Donald Duck sneaks onto a, a Hollywood uh, movie studio. Uh. And he tries to get autographs from all these different celebrities. And actually, this t- ties into another celebrity who died this year, uh, Mickey Rooney. Uh, he also passed away. He was also, like, Eli Wallach, uh, like, he's still alive territory. Although he showed up in the Muppet movie. Yes, he showed up in the Muppet movie. And for some reason, Mickey Rooney always ended up in animated movies. He, he was in Little Nemo. He yeah. was in the Care Bears movie. The fact it was that. like if you had a if you had a low budget animated movie was he the voice of the moon in what in the Care Bears movie uh, no why do I know this I remember it the might Care be Bears a different movie. Care Bears movie oh man but face palm <laughs> but it was like whenever you had like a low budget animated movies for some reason you'd get Mickey Rooney to do a voice well he needed the work well. I mean, maybe they, it, it you know worked what it is. For the, him, the filmmakers very... probably wanted to work with a legend. Well, yeah, you can say that too, but yeah, I can't think of another reason to explain it. I mean, yeah. people obviously sought out Mickey Rooney for some yeah. reason. But it should. But the point is, though, it should. And I'm glad he got the work, but yeah. because you know, he certainly did a lot of stuff earlier on, like working with Judy Garland. Yeah, he was her, him and it's funny him and Troy Temple Black were really famous uh, child stars. I think. Yeah. Like I forget. Oh, now it's going to... And that's gonna, the thing I worry about, child stars. You know, it's... In what w- way? Whenever, you, whenever somebody says the word child stars, the, yeah. the, the connotation is usually negative. Well, the funny thing is, to bring this back around to when I was at the beginning of my conversation talking about uh, celebrity death hoaxes, uh, one of the other people, even just recently, uh, that people thought died was Macaulay Culkin. Oh, and of course, and you see a picture of Macaulay Culkin, and you might think, "Oh, he's not looking well." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, his career hasn't been exactly stellar the past oh, twenty years, boy. and it's a shame because he was also huge in my youth as well. And then at a certain point, he just stopped being in movies. But oh. so you might almost think, "Wait, is he dead?" But then he pops up, and it's like, "Oh no, way, he's alive." Yeah. But again, it's well, you wonder. Celebrity, it's. It's, it's a tough. weird thing. It's a very weird thing. I mean, if you ever... We're not going to talk about it tonight, but maybe someday we could talk about Hollywood Babylon, which is one of the movie books in terms of kind of looking at celebrity excess and decay, even going back to uh, 
Uh, here's a name to throw at you: uh, Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, he's talked about in the book. I've read I've read some stuff about Fatty Arbuckle. His his debauchery seems to be greatly exaggerated, but it didn't stop yes. him from ruin, ruining his life. Yeah, it's he's kind of a tragic figure in a way, and but you get that with some of them now. Whereas Mickey Rooney and Shirley Temple, not really tragic figures. They no, they, they had pretty healthy careers. Yeah, uh, but uh, the problem is they're not really well known for much else. Yeah. Well, actually, Shirley well, Temple like Black was a... Well, I call her Shirley Temple. She also became Shirley Temple Black, as if she's a drink. Oh, man. And <laughs> isn't You're that, right. It sounds exactly like something you It does, doesn't it? Power. Yeah, because Shirley... I used, I used to oh, drink that. Shirley Temples all the time when I was a kid. Yeah, but that's like that's a non-alcoholic drink. Yeah, but we have Shirley Temple Black. It's like if it you added like Johnny Walker to it. Exactly. Don't uh, sue us for using that name in our podcast. Yes. And, um, and one last person I'll talk about. And then we'll move on to the next segment. Is uh, and she isn't exactly a, a movie star per se, but she was in movies. Is uh, uh, Joan Rivers? Yeah. And she that was a big loss. That was one of those cases where, on the one hand, you could say, well, she lived a long life, but then you also find out about how she died, and that was actually like the doctors really screwed that up. Like she could still be alive if somebody didn't mess up in a way at like the office mm. and it's kind of sad too because i had actually read about how um she had been literally like texting with uh, jerry seinfeld uh to be on this show that uh he does called uh, comedians yeah. with cars getting coffee i love this show and you know he just does I mean, he has all these comedians in his car and then he goes get coffee with them i've it's heard just of natural. the series, yeah it's really funny and it's you know down-to-earth people on, on the show all the time um, I should try to direct you to a couple of comments that, you that might would like have, on it. That probably would have been something great because with her, to, yeah. To see, uh, I mean, Joan Rivers, like uh, in recent years, have become uh, down to earth. Was not the way to describe. Her. No, but the thing about her is, you know, she's one of these comics who she's been working for forever. I mean, she's been around. She was around for since like the mid '60s. Like she even came up with. Uh, Richard Pryor and George Carlin and that group, and she was like the one woman yeah. as part of them. So in order to kind of stand out with that group, she had to really make her own voice. And uh, I think for a lot of years she was the guest host on the Johnny Carson yeah, uh, show. Yeah, she did that. And uh, then, um, and you know, she. Some people didn't like her. Uh, well, eventually, well, towards the end of her life, it, a lot of she can what get she on people's nerves. Became self-parody. Yeah, but. The thing is, you watch some of her stand-up comedy, though, and she's very funny. She's very wicked. She get she doesn't uh, bullshit with people. Um, she, my brother, was actually quoting a bit to me that he was almost crying, laughing, just quoting to me uh, a comedy bit about Anne Frank. Oh, and how? Uh, <laughs> oh, Anne Frank. Fuck Anne Frank. What 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 kind of writer is she? You know, the end of her book is, and then the Nazis came up. What kind of ending is that? <laughs> so, yeah, she's, and, you know, and she did a few movies, And, and that's too. the thing. No one would know about that nowadays. Very few people would know about it, except your brother. Yes. Who, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's a pity. I mean, people yeah, she, who... she didn't seem like she was done. That's the thing. If yeah. she had not worked in a while, if she had already been kind of in retirement or not doing anything, 
Like, Mickey Rooney, he might pop up in something here and there. But he, you know, you could say, okay, you lived a, a really big life. We can look back to literally before sound uh, in movies and see you in it. And yeah. that's really something. Joan Rivers, though, you know, she was 81 and she was still working, you know, every every day. Yeah. Um, and you see, a do- and there was a documentary a few years back, too, called uh, uh, Joan Rivers, A Piece of Work. And in that, you can also see how kind of obsessive she was and how much of, like, a businesswoman she was and all that sort of thing. Mm. So, with that, yeah, so those are some deaths. Uh, there might have been some other ones I missed. If you have other ones you want to suggest, uh, you could actually send an email to me at jackgatinella at yahoo.com. Because, yeah, there are people who deserve tribute. Yes, I, I mean, think so. Even if it's for small parts, everybody plays their part. I know I probably left out more, but you know we only have so much time. Well, there's always time later. Of course. Um, okay, so now let's get on to really fast just to talk about um, if you're okay to talk about it. Um, you're giving me a look like you're not sure. I don't know what you're going to say. Well, um, just to briefly talk about a, a movie book, oh, which we both right. have read. Um, and I just wanted to talk about this again, because part of what made me think about this is uh, we're coming near to the end of this year. Yes. And thinking about, you know, uh, movie, you know, when you're looking at the year in movies and what you've done, you know, and seeing movies and things like that. And one of the most impressionable books for me, uh, as a moviegoer, uh, for sure, was a book which it doesn't really have wide circulation. Like, it got a release, but you have to kind of look for it. Like, it's not really in that many bookstores, but you can get it on Amazon. It's called My Year at the Movies by Kevin Murphy. Yes, and before we tell you about this movie, I want you to think about how many movies have you seen in the last year? Uh, you probably can't even remember all of them, but I doubt that the number would get to 365. Exactly. And that's what Kevin Murphy, one of the one of the hosts of Mystery Science Theater. And later Riff Tracks. And later Riff Tracks. Uh, that's what he did. Mm-hmm. For an entire year in 2001, Kevi- Kevin Murphy watched one movie per day. Yes. And th- Sometimes it was the same movie several days in a row, like when he saw Monsters, Inc., Huh. And I don't. Did he do that for that? Yeah, Monsters Inc. came out in that year. Okay. And I, it was one of the movies that he that he watched with, uh, and he even brought his uh, young nephew. Oh. Uh, see, I thought he did. That, a, see, he did he, see, I thought he did that for Shrek. I know he saw Shrek, so maybe it was. Maybe I'm just confusing the two because I, I remember the story he told in the book. He went to see Monsters Inc. and uh, brought his nephew, and his nephew his nephew was very young. Yes, uh, you know, probably less than ten years old. And it's a movie about monsters. Yes, and for a little boy scared of monsters, you know, seeing monsters just acting like normal people and being scared of things is probably a very reassuring thing. And that's what, and, for sure. And uh, Kevin Murphy re- re- uh, remarks, "Well, oh, it's just pretend." Uh, that he noticed this on his nephew's face, uh, this look of oh, I, he had a realization. But he saw one movie a day, every yes. day. He, I think that if I remember correctly, there was one day where he almost slipped up 
like he was in Italy or something, and Maybe. he was trying to watch a movie on a projector, and it broke. Yeah. But he still kind of tried to count it. Like, yeah. the thing about the book, too, is it almost is... No, it's not almost. It is an adventure book. Because what he does is... It would be one thing if, you know, Kevin, Kevin Murphy is in his hometown and he just goes to the movies every day, which would be kind of dull. But, you know, Kevin Murphy probably had some of that... Still had some of that Mystery Science Theater money. And uh, <laughs> I hope so. Of what of whatever there was, I don't know. He's probably laughing about that right now. He if he's blew hearing it this. all on Hooker's and Blow. <laughs> you blew it up. Um, <laughs> but uh, he literally goes around the world and he goes to see movies and film festivals and in, in a nice hotel in Quebec. He goes. He sees a movie basically in an igloo. Uh, he goes to Australia to see, I think, the world's oldest movie theater. Or something like that, and it plays nothing but silent films, and it's just he like a guy's shack. He goes to Mexico. Uh, he goes to Mexico. That's right. To, to uh, watches movies on a projector just outside on a white sheet. Oh yes, that's right. Brings his own projector to other people's houses so mm-hmm. he can watch a movie. That's the rule. It has to be. It it has to be a film. Yeah, he it's can't not watch a DVD. it on TV. It's not a VHS. Yeah, he has, he to, has watch to watch projected. a film. Exactly. And he somehow finds a way to go not only to local movie theaters, but he goes to movie theaters around the world. Mm-hmm. The thing that made an impression on me about this book as well is that um, at the time uh, that he was doing this, in 2001, I was also going to the movies all the time. That was the time period where I kind of took it upon myself, whether it was fully consciously or I just wanted to you know, get away from stuff, I would go to see movies as much as I could and see almost every movie that came out around my area and also independent stuff as well. Um, so like a lot of the movies that he talks about, you know, I was there for and I'm, and I'm reading it and thinking, yeah, Corky Romano. Yes. And Corky yeah. Romano. And town and country. Oh God, that debacle. And you know, he can be kind of brutal on some movies, but he also writes the, really the, passionately about movies he loves. One of the hosts of loves. Mystery Science Theater and a, and a real comedian being harsh about a bad movie? No, but, like, <laughs> but I don't, but, I mean, he, but he writes not necessarily in a way that is always comical. Like, when he writes about town country, he literally tells Diane Keaton, shame on you. Yes. <laughs> and then there's, you know, although it's funny, though, that he does see Corky Romano with Mike Nelson. Yeah. And he kind of writes about the experience that he almost can't get comedy out of because he's just shocked at what he's seeing. And the fact that <laughs> there are actually, like, 12 or 13-year-old boys who come in and they just leave knowing that they've seen a wasteland of cinema. Hope for the universe. Anyway. Yes. So... But, um, the, you know, the book can be, you know, it's, it's very funny too. There are a lot of great sections. Like I remember one line, especially, uh, I think he goes to Sundance and he talks about, you know, look, don't say that you're a direct, don't say you're a filmmaker if you actually haven't directed a film. <laughs> if you walk around saying, oh yeah, I'm a filmmaker. No, don't do that. Oh, hi, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Say that you're like a unit production manager or something. <laughs> Use those words. I'm a filmmaker. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think my, my toe is a filmmaker. Um, it's funny you should mention that you were going to the movies all the time back in 2001. Because yes. before I went to college, there was a long, long spell in my life where I didn't even step foot inside of a movie theater. 
Really? Not, there was even, a, not even for like any big movies? The last, there was a time when the last big movie I saw in a theater was Pirates of the Caribbean, the original. In 2003. And years passed before I stepped into another movie theater. So you, saw Pirates, of the, so you saw Pirates of the Caribbean and then you did not see a movie for years? I, did, I didn't see, uh, I didn't go to a movie theater. I, I saw huh. movies. Okay, but, I, but you didn't go out of your way. Okay. No, I'd buy DVDs. But, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, see, for me, it was like, it was a ritual to go to the movies, and it felt like something that I should do, you know, to to keep movies alive and to see them in that way. And, and um, it is important to see movies yeah. that way. I mean, I've gotten a little bit back into the habit with you and all our friends. I don't go to see movies very often uh, otherwise, although I do have to say... Uh, I last that early this year, I went to a movie theater by myself just to see Frozen. Oh, that's because good. Because I felt that I needed to see it, and I and I've only ever gone to a movie by myself once before. Wow. I I kind of like it actually. <laughs> I should do it more yeah. often. See, for me, like the first time I did that, I can still remember because uh, the first one I saw by myself was The Lion King, and. Uh, you no, know, I'd seen it already like three times or something before that with other people. Like yeah. over the course of a year, it wasn't like over a weekend or something. <laughs> but uh, and after that, I decided, you know what? I, I kind of like this going to the movies by myself thing. And I didn't go by myself again for years. But then there was a period where I would often just go by myself. And there is a act of doing that that I find kind of rewarding in a way to just kind of sit there with a movie and sit and then think about it by yourself. Where it's different, where if you're with someone, where it becomes more of a social thing. Yeah. Where you can where talk about it after. there's a person next to you, and you can whisper things and, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. share a reaction to it. Like, and even talking about a movie afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's much different when you uh, than when you are when you're just left alone with mm-hmm. a movie. Yeah, and that and it goes. Back. And it's different than watching it by yourself in the, in your house. Or in an igloo. Or in an igloo. Yes. But and to bring it back to the book, again, the book is very funny through a lot of it, but it's also very poignant. And I found, you know, I love thinking about, you know, the whole act of going to the movies and what they mean. You know, he's very critical, of course, about current cinema and a lot of the trends, and rightfully about, so. About the Eden cinema. I remember distinctly he talks about the sort of dine-in experience where hmm. where you you go to a theater nowadays and you get served your food. See, that's it's funny that he says that because for a long time I wasn't for that, but then uh, I've now been to the Almo Draft House a couple of times, and there they do serve you food, and it's actually really good. Really good food or a really good experience? Um, really good food. The experience is okay. I mean, you do have to. The waiters, you do see the waiters kind of come in and out a little bit. Right. Sometimes in the movie, that is the one distracting thing. But you get used to it. And mm-hmm. you know, also the other thing in the Alamo Draft House is they have a no-talking policy. Well, that's, well, that's great. Yeah. So that book, though, it was it made such an impact on me. You know, just in terms of entertainment, but also in kind of what it was about and how it looked at, how we go to the movies and how what it might mean in the future. He, if you read it, there's also a little bit about the future of digital projection and how he goes to see, I think, was it Atlantis? 
The Lost Empire. I think that was a Disney movie. Yes, it was. It kind of came and went from theaters in like 2001. Like Treasure Planet. Who remembers yeah. Treasure Planet? Yeah. I saw it, and I have no memory of it. The only thing I remember about Atlantis was it was like the last movie Michael J. Fox did before he semi-retired. Hmm. Um, but he saw this, this movie in digital projection, and this was before theaters made that kind of a practically mandatory thing, which is like how it is now, and how he was like, man, this is so great. I love not having a projector like break down on me or the or the light be bad. And has that ever happened to you? You've seen a lot more movies than with I a projector. Have. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Like what kind of is that a real problem? With a projector not doing what it should. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends. Well, it depends. Uh, on I mean, I know it causes movies. problems, but how how often has it happened to you? Um, I could think of a few times. Okay, so like three to five. Yeah, I mean, it's not super often. It's usually a problem more technical, like there's not enough light going through the film. Uh, the projector is not that in great shape. I mean, the Teaneck Theater was especially like that. Well, that was kind of, that was a little run down. Yeah, at, maybe you get more. time. Yeah, so, but anyway, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about the movie. I just want to say that Kevin Murphy, he went to see a movie one once a day and that's a very ambitious thing i but love that the, but the great thing about that idea is that you don't have to do things like that you can't but you can make your own movie goals he set a goal for himself and he saw it through he didn't stop and wait through i mean then again he wouldn't have a book no that's true <laughs> but, but you don't but to become better versed in cinema yeah. or to uh, or to get out there and to see more movies, all you have to do is to have this will to see movies. He saw movies while he was passing, like, a kidney stone. Yes. I remember that now. (laughs) Like, he went, like, in total pain, like, with a baggie, like, at his side, like a medical bag or something. Yes. Just to see a movie. And I'm like, wow, you have balls, man. Yeah. Um, And he... all you have to do is have this will to see movies, and you can make it something fun. Mm-hmm. You can try to see a movie every week, or mm-hmm. you can try to get together with your friends and uh, or and see things. Yeah, you can make a game out of it, or you can try to set yourself a goal, and maybe you can try to make see one movie a day per for a year. Yeah, it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean I. Yeah, it's, for me, it's funny, because when reading this book, I think about how it's not like I've made that goal for myself, but I just unconsciously try to watch a movie once a day, you know, through my life, just because it's it keeps me alive as a, a movie geek. Well your, well, your movie list tonight was certainly was indicative of that. <laughs> well, it was me kind of catching up and having a little more free time, I yeah. guess. Um, oh, one last thing, though, I wanted to say. I think one of the things that made me think of the book, too was uh, the fact that um, the last Hobbit movie is coming out right. uh, very soon. And one of the chapters I really remember, too, from the book was about him going to see The Fellowship of the Ring. And it was, like, a really big deal for him. He talked about how he was kind of, like, this closet Tolkien geek or something when he, he was, was a teenager. He was one of the people who wore, keeps, who wore kelp, uh, capes and, uh, yeah. and felt hats. Yeah, exactly. He was a super Lord of the Rings fan. Yeah. And while he's online... Uh, waiting for the movie, he actually gets into not an argument, a but he kind of with, uh, with he some kind of, other fans. Yeah, he corrects someone complaining about Tom Bombadil. 
basically not being in the the first you know the fellowship of the ring yeah. it's a super geeky moment but it was something kind of charming and it showed how he kind of could reconcile his old geekdom with his current state where you know you see that moment where these f- fanboys so to speak are very passionate about Lord of the Rings, you know. And I really thought Tom Bombadil should have been in this movie. Why isn't he in it? Why did Peter Jackson cut him out? You know, I'm, I'm you giving your harmful stereotypes. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm making some. I'm making sound like a nerd. And <laughs> you know, the funny thing was that. But, was, yeah, that but the funny thing can... was that was me. Yeah. No, I'm just, <laughs> I don't give a shit. Um, but yeah. So, but the point is that I thought of that in relation to how the new Hobbit movie is coming out and how much filmmaking, not filming, but film going is also. Like stu- like the studios are now making it kind of change, and now you have more platforms. You know, people aren't going to the movies quite as much as they used to, and I don't. Know, I just find that kind of sad. Well, certainly something to think about. Yeah. I mean, movie movie going has changed a lot. I mean, just in it, it's just constant... in the past like ten, fifteen years. Yeah, but it, it's always been changing. Mm. Uh, Murphy talks about how there used to be shorts, how there yes. used to be news. Yes, how movies used to be silent. And things have changed, and change is not going to stop. The movies are going to change, though. Mm-hmm. Whether that's good or bad is yet to be seen. But the point is, seeing movies in a theater is something that you have to <laughs> here. You've got I'm lots shattering. of words. <laughs> <laughs> going to see a movie. Is a but very, going to ex- a theater, it's an extraordinary thing. Going to going to a theater is an extraordinary thing. You, it's about the setting. It's about your surroundings, and that is a better, maybe not better, but it's certainly a much more a very unique experience compared to seeing it anywhere else. Yes. Um, so you, yeah, you won't remember the first time you see something on DVD, but you'll remember the time you saw it in the theater for sure. Right. So that is my year at the movies, and go check it out. Uh, you can probably get it on Amazon or one of those uh, online sites. Um, wherever money is used. Wherever money is traded hands. I'm doing that sinister to keep things going. Um, now let's do our movie pitch. All right. What do you have in mind this week, Mr. I would Burchanel? like you to go first, because I went first last time. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So my idea this week is um, is this time actually to adapt something, and in this case it's a book, which um, this sounds a little shocking, but I've actually not finished reading this book. I'm shocked. But yeah, it, you know what it is? It's actually the copy I have is um, one of these un- uncorrected proofs. I have a feeling that maybe one day I will just hunker down and buy the actual copy, and maybe it will read a little bit better. Okay. It's the kind of book where I really I like the ideas and I like the whole world it develops, even if some of the writing isn't that great. Um, the book is called Amberville, and it's by this author named Tim Davis, and it's a film noir with stuffed animals. Great. <laughs> Sold. Yes. Sold. Um, but it's like, to just give you an idea of some of it, like this is what it reads on the back, for example. Um, Eric Bear has it all. A successful career at 
Molasson Town's most prestigious ad- advertising firm. A beautiful wife, a blissful home. He knows he's been lucky. A while back, his life revolved around drugs, gambling, and a notorious crime boss named Nicholas Dove. Um, as Eric discovers, the past ain't as, isn't as far as he'd hoped. Dove and his henchmen are back, demanding his services one last time. Dove has heard he's on the death list, and he wants Eric to save him. And if he doesn't, Eric's beloved wife, Emma Rabbit, will be torn apart limb by limb. The trouble is, no one, not Dove, not Eric, knows if the death list really exists. Um, so in other words, it kind of goes back in the way to my love of like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, in terms of taking something like film noir and infusing it with something that is not, you know, abstract. You know, you watch a cartoon and you kind of think to yourself, all right, this isn't real. I'm watching a cartoon, you know, um, unless if you really believe in those sort of things. I suppose you're right. <laughs> I was just trying to wait for a response. But I just I just kind of picture this book making the kind of movie that I would love to see the Jim Henson company do. I would love to see Jim Henson make like giant Muppets and have <laughs> them inhabit not quite as hard boiled as Sin City, but that kind of world. Uh, like reading this book, it's somewhere not, between Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Sin City. Yeah, maybe closer to Cool World. Did you ever see that movie? I haven't seen that. I know it has a mixed reputation, but I know the the atmosphere you're going. It through. does. It's Cool World is something which I saw a lot when I was a kid. That it was kind of like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but kind of dirtier in a way. Like, um, you know, you kind of get hinted at in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, does this human? cartoon and this rabbit like screw um and in cool world it's more like oh wait is this it's not if they do but how often yes it's and will this human cartoon and this actual human being have sex um in cool world that's a question um (laughs) but you know cool world actually is a ralph bakshi movie so that makes it also really worth checking out even though it's flawed but I see Amberville. Well, that, that describes a lot of Ralph yeah. Bakshi movies. But Amberville, again, it's like you have these tropes, but then, you know, again, they're stuffed animals come to life. You have, like, a bear, you have a dove, you have a rabbit, you have other characters in that mold. And I think it would make a really unique, I wouldn't say blockbuster movie, but it would make a very unique mainstream Hollywood movie, which might not make a lot of. Well, now, not, now I'm not selling it well. I'm about to say it's not going to make a lot of money. It would make a lot of money, but... It would make tons of money, and it would be a great idea. It would be the kind of movie that would subvert expectations, and it would be the kind of thing that I would almost have kind of perverse glee in seeing like kids with their parents looking at posters for the movie in the theater. And kids would be like, oh, man, I want to see that! And then they go see it, and there's a bit of sex, and there's a bit of violence... <laughs> And it's not really for kids, but they see these stuffed animal characters, and they think, I want that. I want that toy. <laughs> so you just want to maliciously scar for life children? Maybe a little bit. I don't know. Well, no, it's it, a noble goal. Too. No, it's a, it's, a fun, it's a fun book. Like, and, you know, again, it deals with a kind of film noir trope, like a death list, and you, know, you have that mystery element to it. And I think that the book also goes more into, are these people, like what is actually going on in this world full of stuffed animals. And I think there's an element without spoiling too much that 
that now it also kind of reminds me of the Lego movie. Okay. And I'll leave it at that. Sweet. All right. Well, that's good to hear. I have my idea. Are you willing to hear it? I will. Are you ready to hear it? Let's do this. It's called The Emperor Who Lost His Nose. (laughs) Picture a giant medieval cathedral with clouds of incense and a teenage boy, 16 years old, ready to be put on the throne of the mightiest empire that has ever existed. Okay. Cut to ten years later, the same man grown up, is thrown to the ground in a, in a racing track before his enemies, faced with the with the red-hot scissors to slice off his nose. Ooh. Exiled to a foreign land, he vows revenge, ready to destroy the men who took away everything. This fall, the epic, the true story of the man who lost his nose comes to theaters. As opposed to what? <laughs> As opposed to video on demand. What do you want from me, yeah, Jack? No, no, no. You, the you, Emperor you... Who Lost His Nose. Rated PG-13. Was... Now playing in select theaters nationwide. <laughs> that was pretty good. Thank you. And you did that as a trailer. That was kind of creative. Well, the last one was a trailer, remember? Mm. Peanut Butter Panic? Oh, yes. Nobody's picked that up, by the way. I'm very disappointed in you. See, right now, am I doing these... So am I doing this pitch wrong? Should this be like a trailer? Well... It would be shorter. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Um, now, just a question, though. So, this emperor, do you see him as being part of a particular era, or is it, like, total fantasy? Yes, it is based on a true story. Is this one of the emperor? Uh, not the emperor, Is this one of the Caesars in Rome? Uh, later Byzantium. Oh, okay. You, you, you've heard me and Corey talk about this. I'm sure you... Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've talked about yeah, yeah. this guy. There there needs there need to be more movies about Byzantine history. <laughs> so this would be... Now, would this be specifically a movie about Byzantine history, or, was it, or would it's it be... It's about a specific person. Okay, so... Because the way you were making it sound, it, it sounded like it had some roots in that, but it also would take kind of like a epic movie leap. Oh, yeah. Uh, wait, you mean epic movie like the parody movie? No. Oh, thank God. <laughs> no. Oh, God, no. Get, no, get out of here. No, um, I, what I mean is that Would it be you give it movie? that scope. Yes. Well, but I also think I meant that it almost sounded like maybe it would be kind of a fantasy movie. No, that's not what I meant. Okay. So it would be a historical epic about this character. Would this, now is this, like, what century was this? 7th century? No, no, not that far back. Okay. Oh, man. I have to do my research now. <laughs> do your homework and get back to me in, in the morning. No, I'm kidding. Um, but that sounds that sounds pretty awesome. I think, I mean, hopefully they could get someone other than Ridley Scott to direct it. Please, God. But, uh, but actually, speaking of which, that will wrap up our podcast for tonight. Um... Hopefully soon, uh, maybe we'll actually try to see uh, the new Ridley Scott movie, possibly, maybe, uh, not definitely, but we're kind of talking about seeing Exodus, uh, Gods and Kings. Yes. Um, and maybe we'll even talk about other Ridley Scott movies and get into a row about that. Um, wow. I don't know, are there any other movies you're thinking about seeing soon? I don't know. Uh, maybe you're kind of aside- winding around for... Christmas time and kind of more in that kind of thing. I mean, I'll time. watch It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve. That's what I usually do. Maybe I'll resurrect an old tradition and watch Die Hard on Christmas night. That's 
<laughs> See, the movie I really should watch is uh, Gremlins. And yeah. I kind of want to show I that I haven't to seen Corey. Gremlins, so i got to do that. You haven't? No. No. I've seen the second Gremlins with you. Yeah, I, the, yeah I, that's how I also showed it to Corey. We follow no rules here. But I figured that it has a Mogwai, so it should be experienced. All right. All right, guys, so that was our podcast, and I hope you join us next week when we do more things. And as always, please remember that the wages of cinema is death. Have a good night, ladies and gentlemen.